The Start On Demand. On demand. Sobeys announced on Wednesday it is going to be the first national grocery chain in Canada to ditch the plastic bag. They're aiming to do this by February 2020. Is this going to change your shopping habits? Also today we'll get the latest on the manhunt in northern Manitoba and we'll ask the question, what would it take to call off the search? And we'll hear from a former Winnipeg police officer who shares his memories of the 1999 Pan Am Games, including how he learned Spanish just to work the games. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb, who's back next week. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Wednesday, July 31st podcast for The Start. Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is back next week. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Brett. How are you on this fine Wednesday morning making our way towards not only the August long weekend, but holidays for you, fine sir. Yes. You starting to get excited? Yeah, I'm, I'm heading out to Alberta next week and that might not sound super exciting, but I've, outside of, I've been to Calgary thrice. And I've been to Edmonton once, and that's it. I've never been on a road trip through Alberta. I've never seen the Rockies. Never seen. I've never really seen mountains up close and personal. You're we're going in? to. So we're going to fly into Edmonton Friday night, and then I think uh, the girlfriend's parents are picking us up. They live in Red Deer, and then they're taking us out to Jasper. Uh, to start the weekend, we're going to go camping. I guess her brother's got a nice. big fancy trailer or something. So. Whistler's Mountain, all sorts of things to look at and see up in Jasper. You are in for a treat, my friend. Yeah, very excited for that. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I remember yeah. driving the boys through the Rocky Mountains the first time a few summers ago. And, of course, they've got their books. They've got their activities going on. I don't think we allowed iPads. I'm pretty sure we didn't in the back seat on that trip. But I'm like, look at the mountains. Look, look at that one to the left. And I'd look in the rear view mirror and they'd take that cursory look and then they'd be looking down. Yeah, that's awesome, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's always such a big deal to, I think, to parents and those that are sharing the experience and are welcoming hosting to a certain extent yeah. individuals from elsewhere and say, this is where I live and I want to show them where I used to live. And yeah, it. It was not the hit that I anticipated it would be. Nice. So there was a lot of yelling and frustration. <laughs> I came out of trying to get my kids to absorb the Rocky Mountains. I don't think anybody will have to yell at you, though. I did also, I did experience some frustration, though, when we were planning part of our trip. Originally, we were going to do two weeks, but we ended up scaling it down to one week because we ended up taking that surprise trip to Las Vegas so we could go see Christina Aguilera because my girlfriend's a super fan. But the original trip included sort of a side journey to we were going to stay a few days in Banff. And I can never say that word. I always want to say it, Banff. But it's uh, there's an N in there, and then I just sort of stumble on it. Banff? Banff. Okay. Yeah, you got it. All right. So, uh, but we, we blew that out. But I, I said, well, I still want to go there because there are a bunch of 
awesome golf courses there. One of them is called Kananaskis, mm-hmm. and it's the cheapest. I've heard it's like great value for good bang for your buck. Well, I looked, I tried to book a tee time last week. I called them, and they had three tee times all week. It said people have been booking since March. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not. I'm used to only being able to book seven days out, never mind months ahead of time. Well, so. people come from all over the world to golf yeah. in that part of the planet. And so you run into those things uh, in the Okanagan from time to time. Predator Ridge is one of the premier golf courses in the Okanagan. And I had connections up there back nice. in the day and still sometimes got shut out. Uh, uh, to get a tea time at the last minute or even a couple of days at nah, man, we've got like a plane load of people coming from Japan or where have you to come and golf. And so, yeah, the, it's resort golf is a different animal altogether because they have such a short season up in Kananaskis because conceivably you could book something for next week. It could snow up there. Yeah. Oh, Without without question, it could. Well, and that course was, they've got two courses there, and they were destroyed by the flood five years ago. They completely rebuilt, and apparently they're even better. It's a huge story. Like, in turn, in the golf world, it's a great story. And three of the top uh, score golf puts out their top 60 public golf courses, and they just released it last week, and three of the top courses in Canada are in the top 15, and they're all... Uh, in that region, there's one called Stewart Creek, Kananaskis, and then the Fairmont Banff Springs is number two. Oh, which is an incredible course. If you ever get a chance to do that and uh, have the scratch to do it, I'm looking at make next sure year. that you do. <laughs> Start saving now, my well, friend. Now, now that I know how far ahead of time I need to book, I'm uh, looking at doing that next year. I did get out playing yesterday. I went out to Bridges in Starbuck. It was such a beautiful day. Yesterday was perfect. Not a cloud in the sky, not a breath of wind. So, yeah, that was nice to get out. Bugs were okay? Bugs were okay for the most I think a couple of mosquitoes landed on me, but for the most part. Although this morning I was outside grabbing the paper here at work and a moth, I think it was like Mothra, it basically almost landed on me. So I came running back inside because I'm a a scared little child when it comes to bugs. They are getting nasty out there and uh, lots of different varieties as well. We're heading up to uh, the lake this weekend up on the east shore of Lake Winnipeg up to Lester Beach. Hopefully the lake will not be a green slime potpourri like it was last weekend. I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures and any of the video from Victoria, Leicester, all along the hillside, that east side. It was, uh, you know, those those spinach smoothies that are becoming popular? <laughs> yes. Or kale smoothies? Yeah. That's what it looked like. Oh, gross. Yeah, so you weren't even able to go down and enjoy the beach. It was so absolutely disgusting. So uh, we're hoping for uh, better better water conditions this weekend. Mackling and McGarry. McNabb is back next week at 5.01 this morning. We've got a news release from Sobeys. The headline reads, Sobeys' first national grocer to eliminate 
plastic bags. Announcing today it will remove plastic grocery bags from all Sobeys grocery stores by the end of January 2020. The change will take 225 million plastic grocery bags out of circulation at Sobeys 255 locations across Canada each year and that will include its other stores. The grocer's owner Empire Co. will roll out the initiative at its other banners including Safeway and Foodland soon after. So here's the text message at 204-780-6868. Oh boy. Guys, Sobeys phases out bags, I phase out Sobeys. Simple as that. That made me laugh. What do you guys think of this? TFJ? Why would you phase out Sobeys because they phase out plastic bags? I guess they don't want to they don't want to have to bring their own tote or switch to paper bags because that's going to be the alternative. Right. You're going to have to bring your own tote or bags or uh, purchase uh, or get paper bags at the store, which I find weird too, like going back to paper bags. Uh, are they going back to paper bags? Is that what I said? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, I've been shopping with tote bags for years now, and I would never use plastic bags just from a purely convenience perspective because those tote bags can carry way more. And if they're insulated, you can keep the food cool. Um, I, I could never go back to, to plastic bags, frankly, but I use plastic all the time. Oh, Jeffrey, oh. were you the one that sent the text? No, no, oh. no, 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 not at all. <laughs> That's not going to stop me from, from, uh, shopping at Sobeys. It's uh, right across the street from me. So a lot of the times I just walk there and so I don't bring my own bags. I don't even have my own bags, but I use those bags for my garbage all the time. So. That's uh, one thing I'm gonna miss. I'm gonna have to actually buy garbage bags. Yeah, I think a lot. <laughs> wow. I think a lot of people use them for that. Or or doggy do. Yep, yeah. absolutely. So, so um, I use my I use the bags for cat litter. We've we've had other suggestions on cat litter, and there are bags. And there's a Eve said there's some sort of like a litter locker. I can't remember what it was called, yeah. but but I, that's still what I use the bags for. I figure, well, if I'm going to take the plastic bag, I'm going to use it for something. I don't want to just chuck this bag into the trash. Having not been and not gone to use the insulated cooler bag that you this insulated tote mm-hmm. you have, Tristan, is that to keep all of the uh, the ten pounds of microwavable dinners <laughs> cold and the uh, pizza pops? Yes, right. Can any of you name the last time I've had a microwavable dinner? I don't see you eat because uh, you're out there and I'm in here. Right. So, Kelly. Does A and W count? <laughs> <laughs> is A and W microwavable? Uh, yes. If it goes cold. But by the, by well, the time, I guess that argument is by, foolproof, Kelly. You're 100% the, right. By the time you finish stopping and talking to all your fans from the NW at Polo Park, your hamburger's cold. Oh, so my fans. Yeah. Oh, my <laughs> word. You people must be so desperate for rumors around here. Holy crap. That's not even... Like, like if, if the truth is uh, if the truth is here on, on planet Earth... On no, no, no. If the truth is here on planet Earth, what you've just concocted is in a separate universe altogether. <laughs> I, I thought the I dream mean, was out. By LaSalle. <laughs> really, it's right here in the studio. Yeah. Wow, that yeah. went off the rails really quickly. Well, I was quite impressed that. Kelly, yes. do you use uh, those plastic bags or do you no. take your own in your house? We've been using totes and cloth bags for as long as I can remember. Uh, I would say probably going back to the mid-90s, we've been using totes and, and, pl- and uh, cloth bags every once in a while. Uh, I'll forget, but now mm-hmm. I've even started the habit of you know what I'll leave all the stuff in the uh, in the cart, take it out to the car because I know I've got cloth bags there. Mm. Yeah. Oh so, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and we used one of those kitty lockers before when we had our cat. Really handy. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll no, have to look into it. it. It's an extra cost. Yep. But it's very handy. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it's, uh, it's probably not a huge cost, and in the end, it would say yeah. the convenience would pay yeah. for itself. Can you describe this, Kelly, in a fashion only you yep. could? There's, well, okay. There's a ring that goes in the top of it. It's uh, it's kind of like in a stand, and then there's a blue bag that attaches to the ring. So as as the bag fills up, you haul it out of there. Cut it, tie it up, throw it in the garbage, and then you can set a new bag in there. And it usually, depending, I don't know how many cats you have, but uh, oh, it, it sounds like sort of them. like a, one of those diaper genies. Very similar to that. Okay, yep. got it. Cool. All right. Riveting. What are we talking about? Well, hey, it's handy if you have because um, that's it, why it's Tristan al- has all his fans waiting for him. No, I don't really have fans, Kelly. Well, it's an alternative for me because really, that's the the main reason why I still use the plastic bags is because I know those bags will yeah. go towards the cat litter. Another listener saying, if all the stores decide to stop with plastic bags, then I guess yeah, there'd be no choice. I would have to just adapt. But until then, I would still have variety to shop from. In other words, not, it sounds like I'm taking away from that. I'm not going to go to Sobeys. I'll go somewhere else. Yeah, and I, I, I think Sobeys takes that into account. They know that yeah. there are some people who are going to have that attitude. My prediction, I don't know this for a fact, but my prediction would be that this is just the beginning Absolutely. of the end for plastic mm-hmm. bags at yeah. major grocery stores because once one does it and everybody else monitors how it's going, and if it's going mostly okay, they're going to follow suit. Let's face it, they don't like having to order 200 million plastic bags. Those cost a couple cents each. Well, that's four, it, f- for about four or five million dollars a year. And, and that's one chain, it's worth and that's noting. One chain. Yeah. But that's it. But let's think of it from an environmental perspective. Absolutely, though. yeah. You know, that, it, that's what we should be thinking of. In, in my opinion, and and everybody, you know, can have their own thought process on this. But uh, our thought is that, you know, we're trying to do everything we can to help with the environment, as small as that effort might be. And this news comes after yesterday. We learned, Greg, uh, that the the hotel's Holiday Inn, ditching many bottles of shampoo and other toiletries, uh, Holiday Inn and Intercontinental Hotels, that's uh, over 200 million mini bottles they go through a year. So they're looking to... Do the same thing. So we're just getting announcement after announcement from companies looking to reduce their footprint. Yeah, get ready for change because it is coming. Corporations are, I think, looking at this two ways. It's an opportunity for them to save money and also to have that label and have the public look at them as being environmentally friendly. It's a two-win situation for them. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to shy away. In fact, they're going to aggressively look at ways to do this. And, as uh, any good company should. As yep. any good company should, uh, for a variety of reasons, including shareholder value, profits, and being good citizens and stewards of the planet. So, but not lower prices? Uh, but not lower prices. Thompson, Manitoba, one of our texters saying, banned plastic bags about five years ago. What's the big deal? Plus, uh, no more ghosts in trees. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> ghosts in trees. Love the way you put that. But we've had all kinds of feedback at 204-780-6868. The first text that we got this morning uh, before, I think it was around 6.30 when this one came in and made me giggle, was, guys, Sobeys phases out bags, I phase out Sobeys. Simple as that. The announcement is that they are getting rid of plastic bags as of February 2020 in their stores. So shoppers at, Cho- at Sobeys will need to bring totes or 
bags of their of their own, or they'll have to use paper bags at the store. And that's been the subject of other feedback as well, where someone said, it's funny, stores went from using paper bags to plastic bags to save the trees, now going from plastic to paper to save the environment. Well, we're going to ask about where do those plastic bags go now? Because you can't put them in your recycle bin, but you can take them back to the stores. They have those gray bins and you can take back your unwanted grocery bags. We'll find out where do those grocery bags go. We'll try and find out how many do they get back and what are they turned into. One of our listeners suggesting is this an admission that they don't do anything with the bags, that they don't recycle them. I don't think that's the case, but we'll certainly dig into it a little bit more. And I got back into into a little bit of a back and forth with Scott about the same thing and the idea of not having these bags. He says the elimination of single-use plastic bags. Will there be a viable option provided like back to paper bags? The answer is yes. Or do I become a street performer (laughs) juggling my groceries home? And I made a suggestion that Scott could juggle his groceries on the way home. Buskers make really good money sometimes. Yeah. So he could actually come out revenue neutral on the groceries, (laughs) (laughs) set up at a street corner and uh, stay until you made enough money to pay for said groceries and carry on your merry way. Somebody just texted us saying, what will the St. Malo bag ladies do without plastic bags? I'm sorry? They sent us a link for a story from SteinbachOnline.com dated Thursday, November 1st, 2018. The headline is St. Malo bag ladies help homeless by crocheting plastic. A group of seniors who call themselves the bag ladies have found a way to help the homelessness through crocheting. Around two years ago, a woman from St. Malo named Evelyn... Tuga, and apologies if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, realized the widespread issue of homelessness in the area and began making sleeping mats out of recycled plastic bags to provide bedding for those who slept on the street. Isn't that fantastic? That is genius. I don't I don't think we're gonna run out of these bags anytime soon. No. You know, everybody's got a secret place where they hide them or where they keep them. Uh, sometimes less visible or more visible depending on whose house you're at. We've done a good job of getting rid of a bunch of ours, but for a long time, we just had a really big Ikea bag, not the blue one, but an actual one of their uh, disposable, which aren't really disposable after all, uh, bags with all the other shopping bags in them. And it was kind of an eyesore. I, When I lived in my apartment on uh, Cordon, in my kitchen, I just had this small sort of broom closet uh, where I actually sort of shoehorned. It was like maybe a foot and a half wide. I just shoehorned this skinny, tall bookshelf in there, and I put all my cleaning products in there. But I would toss my plastic bags in there, and it was never meant to be a permanent solution. It was just like, where do I put this? I'll just throw it in there for now. And it just it it got to a point where... I was always scared that if I brought someone over, someone new who wanted to snoop around and they would open the door and they would be just like covered. They would be like an avalanche of plastic bags would come out and drown them and squash Uh them. I bet you I had when I finally pulled them all out and got rid of them. And I wish I didn't know that you could take them back to the store. I just ended up throwing them away. I'm sorry. I confess. But I'm sure I had 300 bags in there. Uh, like I can I use them like Fortier. They were they were my garbage bags. Sure, a lot of people do that. But uh, I I always had more bags than I ever needed, 
And uh, yeah, what do you do with them? We've was all it, got a stash, like you said. Was it like, uh, was it Ross and Monica's grandmother on Friends who uh, took the sugar twin and the sugar packets and had thousands of them stored away in a closet somewhere and Ross gets buried in an avalanche of sugar and uh, <laughs> sugar twin packets in one episode. And a really good point is that uh, Costco has never had bags. And of all the places where you kind of need some help and carrying the stuff, it's Costco. So people inevitably bring their own containers or you can, and I think this is a great way to go, they give you the boxes that all their product come in and then they can pack your individual items in those boxes. I know a ton of people take advantage of that. And of course, the cardboard is recyclable in the curbside pickup program. And as the search for two British Columbia men wanted for murder continues in northern Manitoba, questions about the overall operation are starting to be asked. Experts and casual observers alike are starting to wonder out loud if the suspects are still alive, if it's time to wind down this search, or at what point does it end altogether? Christian Luprecht is a national security expert at Royal Military College. Well, you can see that uh, RCMP are already drawing down. They're drawing down the, the checkpoints and uh, they're drawing down some of the assets that they had sent into uh, Gillam and York Landing. So, uh, the, the I mean, this would be more of a uh, of a phased out uh, rather than sort of a, a, an immediate sort of calling off of the search. Um, ultimately, the challenge here is that as you have fewer tips coming in, uh, you don't have much in, to go on in terms of leads and uh, um, the challenge is that these two individuals may well be dead, given that anybody who's been up in that area knows that between the muskog, the mosquitoes, and the bears, your chances of survival out in the bush, especially if you're not equipped and you don't know the area, uh, are probably next to nil. Luprecht joined Julie Buckingham and Will Reimer in for Richard Cloutier just after 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon on the news on CJOB. What else can the Mounties do? Well, I think ultimately you have to coordinate these operations with local communities. And so you need to go also with the experience of the local leaders who will tell you what the chances of survival uh, would be and where individuals, if they were going to hide out, uh, where might they be uh, trying to head. And so I think if community leaders are uh, suggesting that uh, probably there is no longer a risk and all the area and the houses have been searched, that's probably all we can sort of reasonably expect from, uh, from our federal police force at this time to ensure that uh, there's no risk to public safety uh, in those remote communities. And now, of course, the cost. What are the costs involved in executing such a sustained search on such a large scale? Pretty much everybody who's there is out there on overtime, and then you have to figure the cost of the lift capacity to actually bring in the assets. Um, as you know, housing is always strained in uh, small northern communities, and so you have to bring in all your capability to actually house these individuals. Um, you have to feed them. Um, they also get drawn. I mean, some will have volunteered for this task, but usually often when these, these operations are run, uh, detachments will be told every detachment needs to provide one member, two members, for instance, for this type of operation. And so that also means it leaves other detachments uh, in the region understaffed, and many of these detachments are understaffed to begin with. Um, and so that means it doesn't just put a strain on the individuals, it also puts a strain on the entire organization overall. And yeah, the, the costs for these types of investigations escalate quickly. And so there's always a give and take between uh, what's the operationally the right call to make for the commanding officer and for the people in Ottawa who hold uh, the budgets for these types of special operations 
conditions um, in terms of when do you hit diminishing returns um, on the investment of uh, of, of people and uh, and capacities. Priorities are continuously being made, reevaluated, and remade in every organization. What are the sacrifices being made elsewhere? Just like you around the radio station and all other Canadian sort of entities, the resources are limited. And so um, inherently, if you're going to run a massive operation like this, and especially if you're going to pull air assets out, uh, these air assets are usually tasked for other purposes. And so it means that um, other investigations are probably not getting the staffing and getting the assets that they necessarily need. Um, and so those are uh, allocation questions that ultimately the chain of command within the RCMP needs to make. But uh, when when the investigation calls in the military, it either suggests the RCMP didn't have the technological assets they felt they required uh, to be confident that these individuals weren't out in the woods, or it means that the RCMP simply had too few assets around the country to be able to surge uh, for that type of operation. I think one of the um, conversations that we're going to have in the aftermath of this is whether indeed our federal police force was adequately prepared, adequately resourced, adequately trained. Uh, and had the capacities to surge on relatively short notice uh, for this type of operation in a very challenging remote part of the country. Now, if these suspects were on the loose in a major Canadian city, we're sure that we would be having a discussion about winding down operations without a definite conclusion. So should we expect RCMP to deliver the same results as we might in a major city? The rule of law applies equally to all Canadians, and all Canadians, regardless of where they reside in the country, are entitled to make sure that they receive the same quality of police services and the same quality of public safety. Uh, and so it's important, especially for the federal police force, that is the contract policing force in eight out of ten provinces, including for many small communities in Manitoba, and that is ultimately responsible to the Ministry of Justice in Manitoba, to ensure that Manitobans and the Minister of Justice in Manitoba uh, can feel certain that the RCMP is able to fulfill its contractual obligations to the province with regards to public safety. Just to clarify, I think I said we are sure we would be having a discussion about winding down operations. Meant to say we're not sure that we would be having such a discussion. Ultimately, who would make the call to call off the search? Right, so there's always an incident commander for these types of operations, and so the incident commander would coordinate uh, with the RCMP division for Manitoba, as well as, since this is a federal uh, and national policing investigation, uh, with RCMP headquarters in Ottawa, but they would also um, want to be in close touch with the local community and community leaders to ensure that communities feel that um, both the way the operation is being conducted as well as um, the results of the operation are to the satisfaction of the local communities. And inherently, you'd also want to be talking to and keep informed the Minister of Justice in Manitoba, uh, who's ultimately responsible for RCMP contract policing and law enforcement services in the province. And so you want to make sure that you have a collective decision where uh, everybody feels that they had input. And uh, given that we have neither two suspects in custody nor two bodies in terms of uh, uh, in terms of uh, them perhaps being deceased out in the woods, um, there remains ambiguity here, and that will require uh, some consensus as as to the, the timeline and the nature of the drawdown on this operation. Brett, it would seem as though one of our listeners was reading our minds here because we had a couple questions to ask. Mm-hmm. 
One of our listeners already answering them and ask and asking something altogether. I think something that's on a lot of people's minds. After all the stress and anxiety these two guys have cost people, here's hoping the bears have got to them first. Personally, I think they're still alive and have evaded the police. Just my opinion. So here is the question. Two of them actually. Is it time to call off the search? Or is it imperative that we know what happened to these fugitives one way or the other? And John texting saying, keep chasing them. Who would want to be stuck in the bugs nonstop? Prison would be a holiday. Speaking of crime, we are going to get perspective now from Gillum, Manitoba, where Global's Sean O'Shea rejoins us once again this morning. Sean, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? Doing very well. And for those listening, sounds like there is a little bit of a delay in our connection with Sean. Now, Sean, the headline at cjob.com at globalnews.ca. Questions remain as Manitoba manhunt stretches into day nine. And some listeners are saying is a time to call off the search. So what is the latest from up there? Well, and I apologize if there is a technical delay. We're in a pretty rural area of, uh, of northern Manitoba. Uh, I think the, the reality is that the questions are being asked and that they're legitimate questions. This is now day nine of this search. It's an important search for, for two suspected killers. And, you know, everyone I think would, would agree that you have to pursue uh, uh, people who are accused and considered to be responsible for murders. The problem is that in day nine here, uh, there are no results. And the expert we talked to yesterday said at some point, uh, because of budgetary concerns and because of logistical concerns, uh, you have to consider whether it's worth pursuing a, a massive scale, a mass scale search with diminishing returns. Uh, you guys, I'm sure, are aware of what it's like up here. It's buggy, it's boggy, it's thickly forested, uh, and they're relying on tips from people to say, did we see this person? Where was that person? And and they've they've got tips, they say. They, they say they had 260 tips in the last seven days, but to this point have turned up nothing. So I think the questions are going to start to get uh, more um, more sharply focused about how long this is going to go on. We had uh, yesterday afternoon um, national security expert from the Royal Military College, Christian Luprecht, uh, on our news program between four and seven. We played some of that conversation earlier this morning, Sean, and those were the questions he was answering, some of the theories he was throwing out and proposing and giving us an idea of just how many resources are involved. And then, of course, the resources that are lost in detachments right across Canada uh, for RCMP, other experts who are focusing on this means they cannot focus on other situations across the country. So a genuine uh, consideration that that is probably taking place has been probably taking place all along in terms of uh, the PR aspect, the comfort aspect of whether or not these gentlemen are even still alive, uh, all sorts of questions that every single organization, including our own, are asking and answering with regards to resources. It's it's a valid point. Uh, I guess if you are you know if you are a family member of of one of these people who died, 
you would want the police to do anything and everything possible to try to bring the killers in, the suspected killers in. And so it's a it's a great question about weighing resources. Um, you know, a lot of these Manitoba communities have a dependency on the RCMP. There's a contractual obligation for them to provide police services. So we talked to some of these tactical people yesterday. They were they were, you know, waiting for orders. It wasn't like they were they were on the road doing much yesterday. Yesterday was very much a holding pattern. So as they sit here, as they are, you know, waiting to do what they're supposed to do here, other areas of Manitoba, other communities aren't being serviced in that same way. So if, if you live in Flin Flon, if you live in a different place where they depend upon the RCMP to provide services, you'd want uh, as many services provided as possible. So this is, I think, you know, we're, we're at day nine. The RCMP is not saying this officially. They're not saying we're scaling back, we're pulling back. They're not saying that yet. And we don't necessarily expect them to say that today, although they are having a press briefing later on today, as we understand it. Uh, but uh, but it is a valid question. And there's the cost, of course, as well. And, uh, you know, what Christian was telling us yesterday is that it's not an open, it's not a, a bottomless cup of budget. Uh, what goes into this comes out of something else, and that's something that is also going to go into the mix of consideration. Well, and one of our listeners was asking about who who pays for that. The, whose budget is this money coming from? Uh, again, a good question. I mean, there, if this was a terrorism investigation, the RCMP has a very um, uh, delineated uh, way of dealing with that. And and with respect to terrorism, there would be no limit to the amount of money that they would spend. Uh, right now, you've got uh, probably being split into different kinds of budgets. But the reality is that you know it's not an unlimited amount of money that they have to spend. And, and, and the RCMP in many ways is limited and, and constrained. They also provide contracted police services in uh, different areas. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated kind of budgetary thing that I don't fully understand. All I know is what I've been told. And that is that, you know, if we keep going on this every day with a full contingent of, of, of Mounties up here and the military as well, let's not forget about the, the military involvement, the air support they're getting, and that is very expensive as well. If you continue to pursue this, something else isn't going to get done later. And so your listeners uh, are not wrong when they, they show concern about that. Having said that, again, people want to find these people because they're not only uh, considered to be responsible for three murders, they're considered to be a public safety threat. Sean, thank you so much for the work you're doing. We appreciate uh, your time, your input, and all your energy to uh, try and get us answers on uh, this case. Uh, much appreciated. Thanks for having me on your program. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Global's Sean O'Shea joining us live on 680 CJOB from Gillum, Manitoba, as the manhunt continues for the two BC murder suspects on the lam. Of, of course, Sean O'Shea is a gentleman. I use the term gentleman in pursuit of these fugitives. Uh, it was a complete slip of the tongue, and I want to make sure everybody knows I had zero intention of calling those people gentlemen. going on on Portage Avenue? Well, a popular mural on Portage Avenue was taken down on the weekend, leaving local music fans perplexed and frustrated. 
The mural, located at 1349 Portage Avenue, honored Winnipegger Gar Gillies, fame creator of Garnet Amplifiers. The mural was erected in 2003 when the building was the home of Second Encore Music Store and was apparently paid for by the music store's owner and the West End Biz. Both were surprised to see it taken down over the weekend. Quote, we were not aware that the mural had been removed until this weekend, said incoming biz director Joe Cornelson. Now that we're aware of the issue, we're working to get it resolved. Yesterday, we heard from Ian Kalinowski, Canadian, great Canadian travel group, and Hal Anderson reached out to Ian. They live in that building now. Well, the mural is a historical music mural featured in uh, tours and has been on the building since it was um, put up in 2003. Um, mural is in good shape, um, but the brickwork behind the mural needed some work. And uh, we contacted uh, the city and we indicated that we should take it down. And so we did the, just that. Um, we're just tenants in the building. We don't own the building. Um, but uh, we took it down um, piece by piece. It's about 80% of the mural is painted on plywood, sheets of plywood. And uh, the remainder is painted on the brick of the building. Um, and that had, had uh, deteriorated. Uh, a lot of it was flaked off. And um, so, you know, the mural needs some work. And so it'll be restored now? Yes, it will. Um, I think there was uh, potentially a little miscommunication on the part of various people uh, who had interest and involvement in it. Um, but it was carefully taken off the building, um, stacked up behind the building. And um, I believe Winnipeg Biz or West End Biz. Uh, has a mural. I believe that they are going to restore it and um, have the sections that were painted on the brick repainted onto plywood, and then it will be put up on another building. So I believe that's the current plan, um, according, or that's what I've been told from Take Pride Winnipeg. But not your building? I uh, don't believe so, no. And was that always the plan to take it down, save it, and have it restored? Um, yes. Yes, with a little bit of a question mark there. Big thanks to Hal Anderson and Ian Kalinowski uh, to clear that up. So that's good news. Earlier, we were discussing the fact that a popular mural on Portage Avenue, taken down on the weekend, shared with you the good news that the mural is in good hands and will be restored and located. For those that don't know, the mural, formerly located at 1349 Portage Avenue, honored Winnipegger Gar Gillies, fame creator of Garnet Amplifiers. Gillies, who died in 2006, was a notable trombone player who toured Manitoba in the 1940s with the Gar Gillies Jump Band and later rose to fame as the creator of the distinctive Garnet Amps, which powered Winnipeg legends like the Guess Who and Neil Young early in their 1960s careers. The Guess Who is Randy Bachman, also depicted with his band on the mural, has said Gillies Amplifiers created his guitar sound and many other notable artists from Winnipeg and beyond. I was sworn by the distinctive tones of Garnet equipment in the decades since. One of the most famous Guess Who riffs, right? Smooth. No time left for you. 
Garnet shut its doors in 1989, but Gillies continued to build custom gear until the early 2000s. His hands continue to be highly sought after by collectors and have been exhibited as part of the National Music Center's collection in Calgary. So, Jason Talkin, National Music Center, manager of Building Audio, joins us live on 680 CJOB to discuss this further. Jason, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Welcome to CJOB, Jason. We know you're a former Winnipegger, and uh, well, now I, I'm guessing mom and or dad are listening, and you can say now, now, you, now you've made it, right? Absolutely. And uh, growing up listening to my grandpa listen to uh, CJOB, I'm sure he's uh, looking down on us and is a very proud grandpa this morning. Jason, uh, we love to celebrate things Winnipeg. And of course, the news of the mural being taken down was met with a lot of dismay. Uh, We solved the mystery yesterday, which was good news. But it's opened up a whole can of worms for a lot of people. Who was Guard Gillies and and Garnet Amplifiers, the role that it played in music history. Tell us a little bit, first of all, first of all, about Garnet Amplifiers and the role that they played. Absolutely. It's, it's one of these classic Canadian stories. And what I really love about it is it's um, Canadians helping Canadians. And Gar, being a musician himself, um, he was always fighting for the underdog, which was the musician. And being a musician in this era, in the early 60s, the late 50s, equipment just was not available. The only option was to build it yourself. And most musicians didn't have this skill set. So my understanding is he was instrumental in really helping the musical community get the equipment that they needed in order to perform their art. So Winnipeg's sort of known as the one of the music capitals of Canada, if not North America. So uh, is it a stretch to suggest that without Gargilly's technical expertise, the sound that, that people have come to learn and love about this part of the world may never have existed? It's, it's very true. You know, um, it's, it's quite often we don't see our impact, and, and, and it's quite often that some of these stories kind of remain kind of folklore. You know, if you talk to any guitar players, they'll tell you, they'll go nuts about Garnet and, and how influential it was to the sound uh, of, of this era. But outside of that, that very exclusive world, a lot of people don't know about how important this figure was in Canadian technology and, and Canadian history um, because he was able to help artists shape their, their sound. Did we pick a couple of good examples there with Cinnamon Girl and, and No Time in terms of that distinctive Garnet sound? Absolutely. Um, We recently had Randy Bachman through our studio, um, and he worked on his last record by George, by Bachman, by George here. And uh, he also recently donated over 246 vintage guitars. And he was recently telling us stories about how he would go late after a show on Sunday night to Gar's shop and quite often with a blown-up amplifier, and they would tweak sounds and, and listen to sounds. And, and any time that Randy really had a sound in mind, Gar was the person to actually put the rubber to the road and, and make that happen using the electronics of the day. 
How widely used were his amps uh, across the land? Well, they were at first. No one really knew about the Garnet sound and, and Garnet amps. It was very unknown. Most of the amp manufacturers were from America, and this is part of the story where um, actually uh, Gar reached out to the Guess Who and, and said, I will give you equipment in exchange for endorsement. But what is really strange is here we are 40, 50 years later, and people are still using this equipment to this day because of the quality. A, it's lasted this long. Mm-hmm. It's still in working condition. It's serviceable, um, and, and that speaks to the construction and the quality of the stru- construction. But most guitar players are, are looking at this equipment that was made 50 years ago rather than an amp that was made one or two years ago. Jason Talkin is National Music Center Manager of Building Audio. This is in Calgary, Alberta, a facility that I strongly believe should have been built in Winnipeg. But that's a sidebar, Jason. Tell us, how did you get so passionate about this topic and and what drew you uh, to becoming an expert uh, in audio and then this this side passion, it seems, for uh, this story uh, from Winnipeg history? Well, I think it's really important um, that we, uh, especially in music, um, basically honor where our technology and and our influence came from. And this is a Canadian story that we need to champion, we need to tell, um, because it's it's really impacted uh, our culture and uh, it has impacted how musicians really interact with the uh, the the audience you know prior to garnet amplifiers uh, a guitar player wasn't couldn't even be heard over the rest of the band and quite often the band would all plug into one amplifier so gar was able to give each band member their own amplifier and get some volume behind and really change the art form this is fascinating stuff, Jason. I hope we can call you, call on you again for for other stories uh, surrounding uh, the incredible history and legacy of Canadian music. Thanks for painting this picture for us. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. We have been talking about the Pan Am Games, the 1999 Pan Am Games, and on July 23rd, when Kelly Moore sent out a tweet that it was 20 years ago today that CJOB opened its coverage. James G. Jewell, at James G. Jewell, who is the managing editor of the Police Insider and a retired homicide investigator. We have spoken to James many times on this radio station about crime issues, but he replied to Kelly's tweet saying, was a member of Winnipeg Police SWAT team assigned to visit all venues as part of the security team. Worked every day for almost a month and loved every minute of it. Took Spanish lessons ahead of the games to help with communication with athletes and coaches. An enduring gift post-games. James G. Jewell joins us now live on 680 CJOB. James, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit us on a topic uh, outside of what we usually talk to you about. So you were on the SWAT team assigned to visit all venues as part of the security team. So I guess maybe tell us, like, what was your what was an average day like for you at the Pan Am Games? 
Well, an average day was long. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, but but uh, just getting back to the Spanish lessons, one thing I'd just like to share with you and your audience. Uh, very first day on day one, um, those Spanish lessons came into uh, um, very good use. Um, it was an incentive that they gave us as officers to take Spanish ahead of the games. I'm not sure whose idea it was, but it was a brilliant idea. Because on day one, I was present when a uh, member of one of the uh, South American um, athletes uh, coaching staff had a medical emergency and actually collapsed. And thanks to my Spanish, I was able to not only offer him comfort, but make sure that he got the immediate uh, medical assistance that he needed. So it paid off dividends on day one. It was unbelievable. No kidding. You know, you're used to putting yourself in harrowing situations, but when uh, someone's life is on the line, it probably amps things up for you a little bit, James. Well, it absolutely did. And uh, the, the biggest thing for me was just my comfort level with being able to communicate with him and offer him some comfort when uh, he was obviously in a medical emergency. So those uh, Spanish lessons really paid off and they've paid off since. And I said they were an enduring gift. It really has been. So I've traveled to Mexico and Cuba. I recently just came back from Spain. So I'm able to, you know, really enhance uh, my experience when I'm going to these different Spanish speaking countries. So whoever I had the idea to to introduce us to the Spanish language, I'd like to thank them at this point. Do you find that your travel choices maybe have been influenced by the fact that you learned that language? Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, it opens a lot of doors. When you can speak the language in a, in a foreign country that you visit, it opens all kinds of doors. And so it definitely um, that's one of the, the primary considerations that my wife and I take when we, we make our travel plan. And do you have to maintain it? Like, do you practice it? Every day, I'm on my Duolingo app, and uh, I, I bought um, Rosetta Stone and uh, working on that all the time. So you have to maintain it. I'm, uh, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of people I can speak Spanish with, so I have to keep practicing all the time. Yeah, and I ask you because I went to French Immersion uh, from K to 12, and uh, basically it, I, I'm ashamed to admit that the bulk of that <laughs> French is gone because I didn't practice it, I didn't keep it up, and I've forgot. my dad will often say, how do you say this in French? And then I kind of wonder, why do you need to know that? But uh, And then I have to really struggle, and every so often the word will actually pop into my head, but I usually have to look it up, so I'm ashamed about that. But uh, <laughs> So that's cool that you practice it and that you've been able to visit all these places because Absolutely. of that. So you say your days were long. Yes, you know, um, it, it's funny, though. Um, when it comes to actual police duties, uh, I, I just look back at the games with uh, so much appreciation because... You know, Winnipeg stepped up again in an amazing way with over 20,000 volunteers. And the enduring memory I have of the games is just how gracious and helpful and, and just wonderful all of the volunteers were. I mean, I, I talked to a, a friend of mine. Uh, she's retired now. She was on the Mounted Patrol Unit. I don't know if you remember the Mounted Patrol Unit. We don't have it anymore. But uh, a couple of different officers that rode around on horseback. Uh, she was assigned to the Forks for the most part of the games. And she said, you know... I really felt like more than anything, I was just an ambassador for the police service and an ambassador for the city. And I said, you know, that's kind of funny. You were an ambassador on a quarter horse and I was an ambassador with the machine gun. Uh, and I pretty much felt like I played the same role, you know, just welcoming people to the city. People were engaging and friendly and uh, just a great positive memory that I have of that time. Now, at the risk of uh, overstating or stating the obvious, uh, 1999 is pre-September 11th, 2001. And the, and the game sort of changed for police forces right across North America after September 11th, 2001. But I suspect there were some protocols in place that 
that were uh, very much uh, behind the scenes that the average person might not realize were important in, in getting uh, the sites prepared and, and I, I guess, security ready, James? Well, absolutely. And so our work started long before the games began. But And, and it's a very astute observation you're making there with the timing of it all. Um, do you have any idea how many homicides we had in 1999? Uh, I don't recall, actually. Was it a summer of discontent? I don't know. No. Well, I can tell you we had 14 homicides in 1999. All 14 were solved by the Wednesday Police Service. And uh, I can tell you that this year we had 14 homicides by May 5th. So your observation is uh, bang on. I mean, a lot, of, a lot has changed since 1999 as far as uh, protocols for security and things of that nature as well. But uh, not just those protocols, but really the, the whole criminal environment, at least in our city, has certainly changed in that 20 years. Did you have any security issues where you had to step in in your duty as a Winnipeg police officer during the games? You know, there were some minor issues. Um, we did have, we had some defections, as you recall, uh, where we had to get involved with uh, Cuban athletes that were defecting. It was, uh, was kind of like a daily thing on the news, like, how, did we get a defection today? And then there was a, a, an incident, I won't get into a lot of the details, um, when some of the athletes on a, a certain team departed, they kind of decided to take just about everything, including almost the uh, bathroom sink with them in their luggage when they hit the airport. And there was a bit of a, almost an international incident that occurred <laughs> during that time, but uh, cooler heads prevailed and uh, everything got worked out. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't heard about that, so thanks for the insight on that. Uh, were there were there groups of officers, or a SWAT team, uh, that sort of thing, uh, th- that were on standby throughout the games that were ready to spring into action on a moment's notice? Well, that's actually part of the my function was. We wanted to have a, a visible security presence, so that's one of the, the roles that I played. But we were essentially assigned to what we called QRTs, so they were called quick response teams. So we were able to, um, we weren't being held down by dispatch or anything like that. We were free to roam about where we were. If there was an issue anywhere, we were um, able to be deployed in a, a very quick period of time to any situation. But you know, thankfully, the games uh, went off really without a hitch uh, from a security perspective. And it was very positive for our city, um, very positive for the athletes, the coaches, and, and, uh, and the police service as well. And uh, as you look back, one of the things that's really been standing out for me the last few days, James, is just how important these games were to everyone involved and to the people of the city. Like when the games happened, I was in my early 20s. All I cared about was going out and getting drunk with my buddies. I I hadn't really wasn't really tuned in to the to the games. And then looking back, I wish I had been more tuned in. So is this like one of the standout experiences maybe uh, of your either police career, your life, whatever? Well, it's a time I really look back on with a lot of real just appreciation. I mean, not only did I um, get to meet a lot of incredible athletes and see some fantastic sports, but again, it's the, it's the enduring thing that I really take from the games was the, the magnitude of the volunteer, the volunteer community and their commitment to make the game successful. And, you know, that inspired me a lot. And since the games and in now, since I've been retired, you know, I, I, have uh, an obligation I feel to volunteer my time as much as I can and I do I I volunteer on different boards I volunteer at a, our local curling club where I run a league and so I mean I was inspired to be a, a better volunteer and to volunteer more of my time to, and I think that's what really makes our city fantastic and um, is our the volunteer base if he, Winnipeg can pull off anything uh, 
and is thankful to the volunteers that can make these kind of things happen. Was this Winnipeg at its best, James? I really think so. I mean, you had to see it to believe it, to experience it. I mean, there were just a sea of volunteers everywhere. Um, and it was, they were obviously, they were easy to spot. Uh, you can recall the, the volunteer uh, jackets and shirts that they wore. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of the color. Uh, I actually saw someone wearing one of those jackets uh, last week. <laughs> and it hasn't really done well over the last 20 years. I'm not sure if they were washing in cold or hot water, but it's quite faded. I'm not even sure what color I would say it is today. But uh, they were easy to spot. They were everywhere, and they were so enthusiastic and so warm and welcoming to everybody, including uh, the officers that were at the different venues. James G. Jewell, managing editor of the Police Insider blog. He is a retired homicide investigator and in the 1999 Pan Am Games. As a member of the Winnipeg Police Service, he was part of the SWAT team assigned to visit all venues as part of the security team. Even learned Spanish ahead of the games, helped him out during the games and has helped him since. James, thank you so much for taking the time today. My great pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll have to call you Diego from now on, James. <laughs> it's, it's been done, believe me. It's, it's <laughs> my pet name at a resort I go to in Mazalan. They call me Diego. Really? And you would say that. Yes. <laughs> Funny you say that. <laughs> Thanks, James. Always great to catch up with you. Okay. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.